Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this opportunity. May we never become familiar with it, Father. Thank you for always making the truth so very accessible to those who earnestly desire it, for the humble. Thank you for keeping us humble, Father. Thank you for reminding us of why we should be so. Thank you also for the incredible privilege of carrying your gospel out to the far reaches of the planet as your Son commanded us in the Great Commission. Whatever small way or large way we might partake in such an endeavor, we are so very grateful, Father. Thank you for keeping it simple and keeping it real and making it an inescapable reality that that is why you've left us here after salvation even. We pray for those that can't be with us due to illness this evening, and we pray also for those that are still lost in this world that we might evangelize them in your good timing. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 15 of what is repentance and who gets to define it. It'll be interesting to see how much more, how much further the Spirit takes us on this particular topic. Um, before we press on to anything new, I want to review uh, Tuesday's lesson first, of course. And uh, as I was listening to it, within the first five minutes of the class, the Spirit had given us the following to chew on. Don't be naive. Um, and don't be willfully naive either. I think that's a reality in uh, the lives of some Christians. They're willfully naive. But the Bible tells us don't be naive. Using Jesus' name does not make him one Savior. Just because a person says they, quote, believe in Jesus doesn't mean they are saved. God must save them. People do not save themselves by jumping over a bar that they have set. Again, using Jesus' name does not make him one Savior. We've learned this in the Bible. There's Holy Scripture that states that very thing. Just because a person says they, quote, believe in Jesus doesn't mean they are saved. I mean, I could probably go to the mall right now. Do you believe in Jesus? Yep. Well, who is he to you? I really don't know. God must save people. People do not save themselves by jumping over a bar that they have set. As the Spirit's been reminding us over and over, never be duped by the manipulative prowess of the human flesh. Let me say that again. Never be duped by the manipulative prowess of the human flesh. Up here on the board, it's really good at self-justification, my friends. 
people often use the Word of God to justify their own ungodliness. Satan certainly suggested this in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, and tempted Jesus to do so in the wilderness, Matthew 4, and so on and so forth. This is not a novel concept. Anyone can pick up the Bible, find a verse, take it completely out of context, and use it to justify an ungodly end. Use it to justify their own ridiculousness. I mean, if you're honest, we've probably everybody in this room has done it many times in our lives. <laughs> well, it says right here, I think you're missing the spirit of the law. I think you're manipulating things a little bit. I think you want it to say a certain something, so you pull it out of context to do that thing. And because it's Holy Scripture, no one can argue with what you're supposing to be true. So self-justification, people often use the Word of God to justify their own ungodliness. Satan certainly suggested this in the Garden of Eden and tempted Jesus to do so in the wilderness. So I was reflecting a whole lot on this uh, throughout the day and what have you. I want you to ask yourselves the following question. How many Jesuses do you think exist in this world? The answer, untold numbers. Though there's only one true Son of God. If, if you think just because one person says, I believe in Jesus, that's your Jesus, you are sadly mistaken. There are many Jesuses. And there are many churches who proclaim to believe in said Jesus. The problem is, those Jesuses are not the same as ours. They're not the Jesus from this book. They're not the Jesus of this book. They're not the Jesus that this book expounds upon, records even the words of. They're not that Jesus. They're a different Jesus, you understand. So you have to, you have to accept that just because someone uses the word Jesus or even Jesus Christ or God Jesus Christ or Christianity Jesus Christ or whatever in their language, it does not mean that they are saved or are believers or are brothers or sisters in Christ. I was thinking about an analogy, and this one's really a weak one, so forgive me. Have you ever been in a workplace situation where one of the workers decides to self-appoint themselves as boss? You know, the boss isn't around, someone says, myself boss. I'm going to start acting like boss, and I'm going to start imposing my will on other people. And oddly enough, other weaker individuals begin to follow this person. And there's a sort of undocumented hierarchy that develops in the workplace. And so you begin to murmur, you know, like, who's this person think they are? self-appointed boss over here. The point is, just because someone takes on the name or the role of the true Lord, Master, Boss, and others go along with it, this doesn't mean that they are the actual person that they say they are. 
and more specifically, just because some people decide to call this person boss to go along with the charade and even treat them as much or as such, the truth remains there's only one boss. This is what we see in so-called Christianity nowadays. Some variant of the true Jesus is being taught in the churches. And many say his name, but it isn't our Lord at all. He's a counterfeit. The whole charade is a counterfeit. That's the point. So that sort of gets us thinking along this line that we've been on for a while now. Who gets to define these things? And right now we're going, you know, we're on who gets to define repentance. Man doesn't get to define who Jesus is or what he stands for. I know a lot of people want him to be a certain person. They want him to be this way or that way. They want him to stand for this or that. So they're not interested in what the Bible has to say. There's some notion of him handed down through generations. Who knows how they got him. They understand kind of who he is, but then they take him and they make him their own. And they're threatened when the truth challenges their definition of this person. So the reality is that man doesn't get to define who Jesus is or what he stands for. Jesus did a great job at defining himself. See Holy Scripture. The problem is that some aren't interested in the truth. That's the basic problem. And that is honestly what we've been doing the last year or so. Almost since we got off the gospel reload. The only thing I can tell you is from a shepherd's perspective is that the Spirit wants the flock to know that not everybody's a sheep. And I'm not just talking about our own congregation. I'm talking about those out there in other so-called Christian churches. There might be some in our congregation, as I've shared with you, who have since been saved. Who knows? But the Spirit's saying that Inside of the so-called Christian churches, there are unbelievers, false professors who cling to a different Jesus from a different spirit. Even with this truth in tow, the manipulative prowess of the human flesh is able to find loopholes, quote-unquote, that allow it to justify an unchanged life while professing faith in Christ. Now, it was this line of thought that precipitated the idea of lifestyles on Tuesday, a topic that I believe makes some people squeamish. People don't mind doctrines. They don't mind, they don't mind the academia. They don't even mind plainly stated doctrine and truth. They, they, people tend to like it. But when it comes to lifestyles, when it comes to self-evaluation, when it comes to the rub, it hits the road, people start getting squeamish. And they, they start um, objecting to the truth about themselves, about their own lives. So I need you to concentrate. I think, I think the lie that is peddled in today's so-called Christianity is that godly love respects the privacy of man. I think that's at least one of the large lies that exists in so-called Christianity today, that 
godly love respects the privacy of man. And this is in keeping with our theme of who gets to define this anyways? What is God's love then? There's a whole train of, of thoughts we can sort of run with on this topic. So, for example, does godly love respect the privacy of man? Or is it something distinctly different? Does God's love, I should say God's, oh, excuse me, does God love the world so much that he allows man to save himself on his own terms? Or is his salvation something distinctly different? Is, quote, grace different in each of these scenarios? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is absolutely yes. That's the problem. In many ways, as we've seen in the past, and we're going to revisit this evening, Satan's really smart. He's not stupid. He doesn't come at you and go, here I am. I'm going to hit you now. No. He comes in from the side and cuts you out at the knees. He finds a different way to undermine the greatest thing you've ever been given, which is Jesus Christ himself and his gospel, the good news about him. He finds a way to pervert him. And you know how he does it? Grace. He redefines grace. And he says, God's love and God's grace is different than what Jesus said it was. It's not what you see in the Bible. It's not the obvious thing. It's something different. It's something, I hate to use the word existential, but it's something that you realize after you experience. Oh, Jesus loves me so much. He must love me so much that he'll actually bend for me. You know in that perverted, self-absorbed, lover kind of way? The one that says to their so-called lover, if you loved me, you'd change for me. So to propose that godly love respects the privacy of man is just about the most asinine thing you could possibly ever do. Think about it. God sees every man's heart in absolute clarity. So the idea that he gives people privacy is a joke. There is no privacy. That's the joke. We don't get to see. See, some people put up these walls and they say, God's over here and this is my world and God doesn't have entrance. And I can compartmentalize God over here and whatever happens in my little cylinder of life, well, that's between me and myself because in here I'm my own God. That's asinine. The psalmist wrote about the penetration of God's eye into the soul of man, as did Paul. Go to, go to uh, Acts 2.36. We have time, maybe we'll get to the psalmist later. Acts 2.36. So the Bible speaks about the penetration of God's eye into the soul of man, Acts 2.36. 
Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard, they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do up here on the board? And we've seen a bit of this in the past already. They were pierced to the heart. The truth about Jesus Christ is designed to convict unbelievers to the point where God's justice remains pristine whenever he saves them or sentences them to eternal death. And you know what? God is gracious in both sentences. I had someone intimate to me um, recently that they had a friend they were going back and forth with who said that they were a Christian, who argued that they were a Christian, said they were a believer in Jesus Christ, and then argued with this person that the children who were shot in the school shooting recently, all of them went to heaven. Because God is gracious and loving. And that was such a tragedy that that's like the least he could do for them. That's a Christian. And of course, the person from our congregation, like, they went if they were saved. <laughs> and there was a riff. How can that possibly be? Someone's right and someone's wrong. And it's not like you're wrong on a little do corner doctrine where there's some shady area in the Bible. You're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either that's true or it's not true. But do you see, that's what's being called Christianity. But what I see in the Bible, and what you see, hopefully, is that God is gracious in both sentences. Believe it or not. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them what? Repent. Repent, and each of you be baptized. What shall we do? Repent. <laughs> That's what you need to do. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. And that's a reference to Gentiles even. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That's how it happens. And that's gracious. Look, up here on the board, I don't want to uh, overemphasize this or, or have a one-to-one -one correspondence, so I, I hope you understand what I say when I, or what I mean when I say that repentance is grace. That it is grace. It's nothing but grace. What if God said, you don't have an opportunity. I've decided right now, done. Forget the whole, while they were sinners and hopeless, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. Forget that whole thing. I've decided right now, there's no such thing as repentance, you're all doomed. Repentance itself is grace. It is gracious to give a spiritually dead person the opportunity to turn from their sinfulness, especially when they are unable to do so without God's help. What else is it? Of course that's grace. Repentance is grace. It is gracious to give a spiritually dead person the opportunity to turn from their sinfulness, especially when they are unable to do so 
without God's help. As we just noted, God uses whatever is necessary to convict a person first. Now, I need you to concentrate. God uses whatever is necessary to convict a person first. It wouldn't be very loving or gracious for that matter if Jesus said repent, but God never convicted a person first. Would that be very gracious or loving at all if if Jesus said repent? And God never convicted a person in the first place. You'd say, okay, from what? See, repentance is grace. The very fact that God enlightens a spiritually dead person to understand in the first place that they need to repent is grace. That's not something they can do on their own. We've learned this, right? So anybody that calls repentance a human work is an idiot. That's not something people do on their own. God, by grace, says you have something to repent from. But it would be cruel and unusual punishment almost to say repent and never convict a spiritually dead person. So it wouldn't be very loving or gracious at all if Jesus said repent, but God never convicted a person. First, there'd be nothing known to the individual that even warranted repentance. The point the Spirit's making here is that it is divine love. It is divine love to convict a person regarding their need to repent. For salvation mandates a turning from the self-life and a.k.a. denying self, as Jesus would say. It would be the exact opposite of love, cruel even, for God to say to a person, repent, when they had no idea what to repent from in the first place. That would be cruel. Repent or you're going to hell. Oh, what does that even mean? I'm spiritually dead here. What, am I, what does that even mean? That would be cruel, right? Do this thing or else. Well, what am I supposed to turn from? What am I, I don't even, I, I'm, I'm completely engrossed in this situation that I was born into. What's going on here? You're telling me to do something. I have no idea how to do it. I have no power, no idea, no enlightenment, nothing. It's really gracious and loving to show a person and to enable a person to repent. Not to would be the opposite. It would be cruel. That would be like your doctor saying to you, stop eating that type of food immediately or you're going to die. But he never tells you what food it is he's talking about. Wouldn't that be cruel? You're going to die if you don't stop eating that food. (laughs) What food? But then he walks away. Sorry, i got to take this call. 
Benji, man, that would be cruel. That would be like casting a, a sentence on you without the wherewithal to actually get out of it. It would be cruel. You'd never know which type of food you're supposed to turn from, Allah, repent from, in order to live. That would be the opposite of a loving thing to do. In fact, that sounds like cruelty. Well, our God isn't cruel. In fact, God is love. So when he wants an individual to realize how sinful they are, how ridiculous they are, and how much they need him, that's actually love. We have a Father in Heaven that isn't interested in a gospel that remains out of reach to the humble. Rather, our God, 1 Timothy 2.4, desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of Himself. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. What His Word tells us is that we must repent and believe to be saved, to be given saving faith. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what His Word tells us. And what it also says is that He will convict us of these things. We will be pierced to the heart like every other person He's ever saved. Remember, God's grace always provides the means to accomplish His demands. His grace always provides the means to accomplish His demands. It's why a person who doesn't understand the full extent of God's grace, they don't understand sometimes even something as fundamental as repentance. They can't reconcile them. Because somehow the, their definition of grace has been watered down, perverted, uh, made existential, made accommodating, it's been morphed, it's been played with, and the next thing you know, the true doctrines of Jesus Christ no longer make sense. And the really witty among that group find intelligent, quote-unquote, really stupid, but intelligent ways to carve out truth so that their, no, their life is no longer offensive to the actual Word of God. That what they've carved out for themselves is no longer in a, objectionable to the Holy God of the universe. All because their definition of grace was perverted. Like I said, Satan is very smart. He knows that if he can get you to think about God's grace in some other way that's not biblical, the rest of it, including the gospel, goes to pot. On the flip side of God's grace always providing a means to accomplish his demands is the perversion that has infected contemporary Christianity up here on the board. What love isn't? God's love isn't a license to sin or live a sinful lifestyle while claiming Jesus as Lord. God loves enough to inform men of his sinfulness, but he's not willing to accommodate sinful flesh as a function 
of some non-biblical form of grace. That might take a little bit to chew on, but it really is nothing more than a summary of what I've been speaking to in the first half of class already. God's love isn't a license to sin or live a sinful lifestyle while claiming Jesus as Lord. God loves enough to inform man of his sinfulness, but he's not willing to accommodate sinful flesh as a function of some non-biblical form of grace. As I've taught you in the past, the way to pervert the gospel is to pervert the grace of God. It's about the quickest way I've seen that I can imagine even myself. The, the easiest way to undermine the gospel is to attack the grace of God. So on grace, it's easy for God to give His grace, but literally impossible for Him to give the flesh's version of grace. It's easy for God to give His grace in, in abundance. That's what He wants. It's impossible for Him to give the flesh's version of grace because the flesh doesn't like God's grace. Because God's grace includes, ready? The presentation of repentance. But the flesh doesn't like that because that means it has to give up itself. It has to... The person being controlled by the flesh has to give up self. And that's not very accommodating, is it? But the truth about God's grace is that it's easy for God to give His grace, but impossible for Him to give the flesh's version of grace. So I was thinking about that as well. Satan is intelligent and crafty enough to avoid a frontal assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ especially for folks like you. So what he has done so successfully over the years is attack and pervert the very definitions of things like grace, love, repentance, and even the concept of salvation. If you ask the average Christian nowadays, what is salvation to you? What, if, what is it? They'll say, I get to go to heaven. Do you actually think, do you actually know that you've been saved, that you supposedly been saved from something? Did you, do you know what the problem was? I was supposed to be going to hell, but now I'm going to heaven. Is that the actual problem? Is this an issue of destination or deliverance? What is salvation anyways to you? Well, I decided I didn't want to go to hell, so I got my free ticket to heaven. So Satan has been very successful in perverting definitions, including the concept of salvation. That is to say that he has convinced some people that salvation is about a destination, a trip to heaven, not deliverance from the sovereignty of sin. When successful, people are void of the need to repent because Salvation isn't about deliverance, it's about destination. As a result, as we noted on Tuesday, many so-called Christians have built their houses on sand, which, as the Bible tells us, has dire consequences, experientially even, not just eternally. For example, up here on the board, I was thinking about this. And these are the things that break my heart. 
These are things I can't spend too much time on because it's agonizing for me to look at Sean's generation today or Noah's generation today. It kills me. I look at them and I say, this is horrible. These kids are completely lost. The fact that we have two young men sitting here tonight is a miracle, almost. Honest to goodness, that they're actually paying attention. I think. Hey, Sean's brim is down like this. I'm just kidding. It's not. But it's, a, it's like a miracle. Kids nowadays are, 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 are just horribly just train wrecks. And it's, to me, it's heartbreaking. I have a hard time looking at them while everybody else is building them up and finding ways to improve their self-esteem. It's all about self-esteem. Some people's self-esteem is founded on false grace. Now I'm talking about so-called Christians even. Their self-esteem is founded on false grace. They have founded it upon a perverted grace that says something like this. Quote, God is so gracious that he turns a blind eye to your self-fulfilling lifestyle. And this is divine love. That's a lie. God is so gracious, He loves you so much, that He's going to let you be a brat. He's going to let you live in the thing that He wants to deliver you most from, the very sovereignty of sin. He loves you. He loves you so much, He's going to let you abide in the sovereignty of sin and then lie to you about a ticket to heaven. That's the grace that's being peddled from so-called Christian pulpits. And that is not loving. That is hateful. When you lie to someone, you're hating on them. When you love them, you tell them what? The truth. And the truth shall what? Make you free. What if the truth hurts? It will make you free. What if it stings? It will make you free. There's no caveat that says unless it hurts, you know. Chances are, all of you will attest what? The truth often really does sting. And it's not the first thing. It's certainly not the thing that the flesh wants to hear. But this is the lie that's going on. And people have placed their faith in it for their self-esteem on false grace. It's a lie. But here's how I sleep at night. I look at these kids. I know they're being lied to. I sympathize. But you know what I also know? Arrogance believes what it wants to believe. These kids are not without faculties. These kids are not without the ability to humbly seek the truth. They believe what they want to believe. And as long as all the grown-ups keep lying to them. They'll keep going with it because their arrogant flesh says, this is precisely what I want. So that's the only thing that allows me to sleep at night. I always go back to knowing that God would never sentence anyone to the lake of fire that didn't deserve to be there, that, didn't, that wasn't convicted first of the gospel and said no. 
That I can live with. It crushes me, but I can live with it. Arrogance believes what it wants to believe, therefore it willingly turns a blind eye to truth. Now I was reflecting on this as well. Obviously I had a very reflective day. But hopefully you're following along. This is my job. Imagine, just imagine this. Now I'm going to go on the basic premise that you're all saved and you know exactly what I'm talking about and your heart breaks like mine does. Imagine that your own self-esteem is based on counterfeit grace. That you believe in a God, little g, that says, quote, something like, go ahead and keep on believing that your self-life is acceptable to me. Versus denying self, of course. A gracious and loving God. At face value, you'd say, hey, that sounds pretty good. I can get away with murder. I can live this lifestyle. I can be unchanged. I can abide in the self-life. Imagine if your self-esteem was based on that kind of so-called grace. That grace was redefined from biblical truth to that which accommodates man. Because that's the grace that is peddled nowadays. The one that undermines the gospel. And then think about your self-esteem. What is the consequence of that? Of living that kind of lie? Imagine the resulting consequences. The insecurity. For your hope then is set in a God that is pliable, weak, compromising, and accommodating. And then he turns around and says, I'm sovereign. How is that so? Your actions speak so loud, dear Father. I don't hear a word you're saying. In one way, you're telling me you're sovereign. In another way, you're supposedly telling me that you'll accommodate my flesh. How secure are you going to be in that God? One of the ways that an arrogant person goes about justifying faith in counterfeit grace is by twisting Holy Scripture. And this came up, I think, on Sunday. The letter versus the Spirit. There exists right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, good and evil. The, quote, Spirit of the Bible embodies the prior. Fleshly lawyering interprets the letter of the law instead of depending wholly upon the Holy Spirit's interpretation, a la John 5.39. Do you realize, I mean, especially for we English-speaking individuals, this is not actually the Bible. This is a translation of the Bible. But you see, a good lawyer takes advantage of such things. A good lawyer can start twisting words, twisting the letter, and completely disregarding the spirit of the law. Um, open up your Bibles. No, you don't have to do this, but pretend I said this. Open up to your Bibles to the verse that talks about helping the old lady across the street. And that you're an unloving jackass if you don't do it. 
Oh, it's not in there? Oh, then I must not have to help an old lady across the street. So next time I see an old lady who's falling down, 100 years old, drops her apples all over the street, is about to get run over, Bible doesn't say I have to do it. Is that righteous or unrighteous? But it doesn't say anything about an old lady in the street, does it? I think you're missing the point. We see, that's what a lawyer would say. Doesn't say anything about that. Does it say, think of the garden. That's a lawyer. That's the way lawyers think. Let's read this entire chapter together and grab the overall context of this one verse. And as a side note, you should rarely, if ever, read a single verse of Holy Scripture alone. Teaching from a pulpit for the sake of um, efficiency, uh, I have to sometimes say this verse and ask for that verse. That's why some of you take notes, uh, either mentally or in your notebooks, which is very wise, um, because when you go home, you should remember those verses and say, well, what is the context of that passage? Go to John 5, verse 1. John 5, verse 1. So we're really just trying to get to one verse, verse 39, but we're going to start at verse 1. I guess we should practice what we preach, huh? This has been in my own spiritual walk, my own studies, been one of the greatest things, one of the greatest additions in terms of tools in my own spiritual life is just being disciplined to read the whole chapter. Whenever um, uh, I see a verse or whenever I think of a verse, I don't just rest on what I think I know about it. I'm inclined now to open up my Bible or my Bible app or it's on my phone, my, whatever, my Kindle, somehow, whatever's closest, open up and see what the whole chapter has to say. What's the context? Instead of just going on what I think I've known for years, which has proven uh, to bite me in the can a few times. Right? I got a big can. So there's a lot of space, a lot of biting going on. Just saying, maybe TMI. John 5.1. <laughs> Sorry about the visual. <laughs> Sorry to make you ill. John 5, 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, <coughs> excuse me, is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, uh, Beth, Beth, Bethesda, excuse me, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, 
and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry a pallet. That's so ridiculous, isn't it? Is that not the most, that's so ridiculous. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. (laughs) They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. That's a reference to the idea that sin can cause physical ailments. That is fact. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes." For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgments to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's what salvation is, by the way, in a nutshell. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has uh, testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, 
nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures. Now here's our verse. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. What was Jesus saying? The point on the board. You guys are all focused on the letter, looking for ways to justify and even elevate yourself. You are missing me. This whole thing, all these scriptures you've memorized and put people into bondage with, they're about me. You're supposed to recognize me when I come. That's what this all is all about. You are the holders of the oracles of God, and you've used them to shackle people. <laughs> I think you missed the point. I think you're too busy lawyering. Remember, there was just so many atrocities that these people performed all day, every day, in the name of the Lord, in the name of God. There exists right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, good and evil. The, quote, spirit of the Bible embodies a prior. Fleshly lawyering interprets the letter of the law instead of depending wholly upon the Holy Spirit's interpretation. Verse 40. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You've missed the boat, in other words. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. You see? It's unbelievable. You guys hang your hats on Moses. And he was writing about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, that's all he's saying is that point on the board. That for years, people have uh, interpreted Holy Scripture the way they want to interpret it. Like I said at the beginning of class, arrogance believes what it wants to believe. They believe something. He just said that. But they didn't believe in the one whom they were supposed to believe in. They missed the point. Arrogance always believes whatever it wants to believe. So we just saw once again that Jesus had zero tolerance for false professors. People who made a habit of using his good name for personal gain. People who have the audacity to twist the letter of the law, a.k.a. the law of love even. Think about the angle that we've been working on this evening. Oh, God is love, so he'll accommodate you. It says so right here. Look at how God... No, no, no. No, no, no. You don't get to twist the letter of the law when the law is love and then say it's something that is ungodly, such as accommodating the flesh of man. People have the audacity to twist the letter of the law, which really is the law of love, and disregard the spirit of the law, that is the very spirit of Christ. When you laughed earlier about the old lady example with the, the apples, why did you laugh? Do you know why? Because it's, it's, it's ridiculous. God the Holy Spirit would never let you sit in that seat 
this moment in time in fellowship the way you are and pretend that it was a righteous act to ignore her, even though it wasn't in the Bible. That's why you chuckled, right? Because it's almost asinine to derive anything but the obvious that the law of love says, if I see a person in need, whenever possible, whenever humanly possible, I should go help them, right? But a lawyer would say, it's not in the Bible to go help a lady, an old lady over the age of 90, but under the age of 100, with uh, grandpappy apples, I don't, I'm just, I don't know what, what's, Macintosh apples, um, that have three worms, and it's only a half a dozen. That, is that not what a lawyer does? Have you, seen the, have you seen what lawyers have done to our own Constitution? It's a joke. It's a stinking joke. And this, you ready, is way more offensive than the U.S. Constitution. Way more offensive. But yet it's perfect. Authored by God himself. So Jesus had zero tolerance for false professors. People use his good name for personal gain. People have the audacity to twist the letter of the law, a.k.a. the law of love, and disregard the spirit of the law, that is, the very spirit of Christ. There's no tolerance for it. One of the ways Jesus pointed out this kind of lawyering was to point to, and this takes us back to where we began this evening, the lifestyle. He had no problem. Up here on the board, Luke eleven forty six, But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's a lifestyle issue. That, those are choices that these individuals are making. Here's the New Living Translation just to sort of get you thinking. Yes, said Jesus, what sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. How can that possibly be the law of love? What we see in Holy Scripture is that Jesus had no problem exposing darkness that was pretending to be light. He had no problem doing that. And he often pointed to people's lives. He said, look at your life. That's what Holy Scripture reveals to us. And I don't know what the problem is with people. They have a problem with this teaching. They, a lot of people would probably think I'm being legalistic right now, or religious myself, which is heinous. I'm just stating the obvious. If it's in the Bible and it's obvious, then can we just call it and call it a day? Can we just say that's what's in the Bible and call it a day? I mean, Jesus didn't have any problem exposing darkness that was pretending to be light. Makes sense to me. I wouldn't expect anything less from the Messiah. 
And he pointed out the fruit and the lifestyles of those abiding in darkness. Just like his apostle Paul suggested we all do. Don't believe me? Don't think it's Pastor Ed. Go to Ephesians 5.6. Go to Ephesians 5.6. I mean, it's, 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 the goofiness is, is that it has become this issue of rocket science, but it's actually not. It's become this sort of intellectual uh, argument, this, this uh, banter among Christians. And frankly, it goes back to grace. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even what? Expose them. What's the problem? What do you expect him to say? Hold your thumb there. Go to Galatians 6.1. Hold your thumb. Same, same writer. He said, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Galatians 6.1. Okay. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore, thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. In other words, it's actually an expression of love to seek to correct someone. <coughs> Excuse me. To restore such a one. You don't have to be a jackass about it in a spirit of gentleness. You don't have to say, ah, oh, you know, whatever, be an idiot. <laughs> but it's actually loving to say, you know, you're out of line. You know, that's a sinful lifestyle. You know, that's a sin. Maybe they don't even know. How do you know? Unless you actually ask. Unless you actually approach someone out of love. All right. Go back now. So while the context, but as you're turning, while the context of the Galatian letter was to avoid them devouring one another, if you read verses of, of verse 515, hence to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He's trying to avoid them basically chewing each other up and spitting each other out. Because we're all sinners, right? I mean, if we're jackasses to each other every time we sin against each other, we're gonna, it's going to be not very much fellowship at all. The point is that Paul had no problem, though, emphasizing what he wrote to the Ephesians. You're back at 5.11. Ephesians 5.11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. I'm out of time, but I'll say this. Everything that becomes visible is light. Seeing all is light. It's really gracious to help someone see something. You don't have to be a jackass about it. Because tomorrow, in that economy, in God's economy of grace, it's going to be you. That same person is going to go, 
And you're going to go, oh. But I don't know about you. I just want to know. I just want to know the truth. And if I'm out of line, tell me about it. And I'll take it as grace. And I'll take it as a, or from a root of love that is consistent with our Lord's, who had no problem, no problem measuring words against lifestyle and vice versa. The Bible is profound on this thing. And for some reason, today's Christianity, with its perversion of grace and love, that is offensive. That whole idea, that relationship between what someone professes and what someone lives, that has become offensive based on false doctrines. We're out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your patience with us as you continue to teach us by means of your word, with the convicting ministry of your spirit. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us, for sanctifying us in time, for making things simpler and easier the longer we remain here on earth, so that we might bring glory to you by bringing the true gospel of Jesus Christ out to a lost and dying world, Father. We just ask your blessings and your traveling mercies as we continue to do this very thing. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.